0: Hello and welcome to episode 37 of InsureTech Insider, I'm Sarah Kachansky. For this very special episode of InsureTech Insider, we headed to the InsureTech Insights Conference, Europe's largest InsureTech conference held at the Royal Lancaster Hotel here in London. At the conference, I had the pleasure of participating in a panel to discuss the impact of objective data on subjective issues such as mental health. I also caught up with some of the industry's leading experts, gaining insight into the future of InsureTech.
1: Hi. So thank you for joining us. Um, so I'm Vika Manos. I'm a VC at um, Anthemis Group. And at Anthemis, we like to explore different themes within the realm of financial services. And I'm in charge of our investments in financial wellness. So um, at the team, we look at early stage, that is pre-seed and seed, fintech, insurtech, and health tech. And that is because we've Come to the realization that you can't be financially well unless you're physically and mentally well and vice versa so suffice it to say that mental health is definitely a great area of interest for us and um, i am thrilled to be here with this wonderful group of panelists um who if you guys don't mind introducing yourselves and then we can take it from there hey everyone i'm
2: uh, Mi Jung jang or mj for short and i'm the managing director of the metlife digital accelerator powered by techstars we are a TechStars program in partnership with MetLife, focused on insure tech startups globally. And that includes mental health companies. One in four people will have a mental health condition at some point in their lifetime. So, if you look at who's sitting around you, that means someone that you're sitting next to, or you yourself, will have a mental health condition or have already had a mental health condition. So we think this is a really important topic, and so we're very interested in mental health companies for our program. Um, Sarah Kachansky.
0: I'm the head of research for 11FS. That uh, means that I wear a couple of hats, actually. My day job, if you like, is to, to write client research on all areas of financial services, including insurance. Um, but outside of that, I host a couple of our podcasts, uh, one of which is InsureTech Insider. So this podcast is being recorded for InsureTech Insider, so you have a chance to talk to a much broader audience than in the room. And um, the other podcast we host is called FinTech Insider, and we've done a couple of episodes there on money and mental health because exactly as everybody has said, we find that um, FinTech creates these great opportunities to help people uh, manage both their money, their mental health, and the two can't be discussed one without the other. So it's my reason for being on the stage.
3: Uh, Hi, everyone. My name is Nick Taylor. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Unmind, which is a workplace mental health platform that takes a proactive, preventative approach to mental health. Um, so we're just over two years old in a short space of time, um, have gone to support some amazing organizations such as John Lewis, uh, Waitrose, um, Made.com, uh, Yorkshire Bulling Society, and many more. Um, I'm also a clinical psychologist by background and have spent my whole life working in mental health. So I was a volunteer Samaritan, I've been a frontline support worker for the mental health charity Mind, and I've led health teams in the NHS and lectured at various universities in mental health. So it's a subject I'm really passionate about and thrilled to be up here today.
4: Hi everyone, I'm Sean Philpon Morgan. Uh, I'm uh, the co-founder and COO of iCore Health. Uh, We... Uh, offer venture consultant services and also run events, uh, which focus specifically on longevity. Um, I'm also uh, a lead data scientist at NHS Digital, uh, which is the, uh, the technology organisation uh, that covers the NHS in England. Um, and uh, in the past, uh, I, I was a health psychology researcher.
5: Hello everyone, I'm Giorgio Lesteriu, I'm the Co-Founder and CEO of Senti Solutions. Uh, where we're developing objective data for, for mental health, so I'm obviously very, very excited to be participating in this particular panel. Um, so what we're doing is developing digital biomarkers and therapeutics for, for mental health. We're starting by the development of our first product, which is called Feel, uh, which is a wristband wearable device that is able to recognize your emotions and based on that, uh, provide you on-time interventions in and out of your therapist office. Uh, so we're offering uh, our services, uh, our, our product, uh, together with uh, a licensed psychotherapist uh, to health plans, self-insured employers, and life and disability insurance providers. Uh, so uh, we, we're very, very excited to, to be here and talk with all of you because we truly believe that mental health is a, is a very big topic for uh, the tech world, uh, not only for the health tech world. So, very excited to be here.
1: Cool. Um, just before we go any further, I'd like to um, announce that in the interest of full disclosure, both Unmind and Sentio Solutions are in the Anthemus portfolio. Um, so, I promise I'm not going to be biased, I love all of you guys. <laughs> Um, but kidding aside, um, so Anthemists are quite obsessed with embedded finance. We love to explore and bet on how financial services interact with other disciplines, healthcare being one of them. But we're here at an insurance-focused um, conference, and we're talking about healthcare. Like, why does it, does it matter in this context? Nick, would you like to kick us off? Uh,
3: yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, fundamentally... Um, mental health is something we have from the moment we're born to the moment we die Uh, and so too does everyone who's ever existed as a human being I think we sometimes get into the conversation around mental health and think of it as the the one in four type Mm. statistic um, which is super important and to to think about that group of people um, but the reality is we all have it all of the time Um, and therefore we need to think about it in a much wider capacity than just the people who are experiencing problems. And why is that important? Well, um, for a number of reasons. One, uh, we know that prevention is better than cure. We know it across all areas of healthcare, Um, but mental health has lagged way behind in that area. Um, And part of the reason for that is the way that the subject is often positioned. Um, You know, you you can't uh, buy a toothbrush with a picture of bad teeth. Um, You can't buy a pair of Nike running shoes Um, and the person on the wall is out of shape. You buy dental products, which are preventative, with perfect teeth. You buy exercise products with pictures of athletes. Um, But fundamentally, they're preventative, and they're helping us stay well. Mental health, nine times out of ten, positioning of the subject is a black and white image of someone holding their head in their hands. Um, I've worked with a lot of really, 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 really unwell people. I've never seen anyone in black and white. Um, I'm not quite sure how that came about. (laughs) Um, But also, you know, if you think about what prevention allows us to achieve, it allows us to achieve early intervention. And from a reactive healthcare point of view, that's the most effective intervention. As a clinician, I've I've never met anyone at the right time in their journey when I first sit down as a therapist. I've always thought of only I'd met you three months before, six months before, nine months before. um, Because um, that's a problem because we know that if you get to people at the right time, you can more quickly enable them to get better. So by focusing on prevention, we can actually facilitate early intervention. Mm -hmm. Um, So why is it important to the insurance world? Well, if we start focusing on mental health as something we all have all of the time, get us into healthy habits around prevention, then we'll actually facilitate early intervention. And not only is that best for the individual who's experiencing problems, it's best for the insurance world because Mm -hmm. it's cheaper to help people when you're going to have a better health outcome.
0: I think if I can add to that as well, um, We're being, it's being forced into the arena. So if you look at a lot of insurers who, um, particularly in the health insurance space, who are starting to, you know, the example springs to mind of John Hancock in the States, where you can't have a health insurance policy without some kind of device that measures, you know, whether you are improving, whether you're doing that prevention. I think it can no longer be ignored. I think the insurers are, are sort of pushing into that space.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, in certain cases... Because they're trying to save money, because whilst we do look at the statistics, mental health problems are increasing, whether that's you know, increased diagnosis or whether that's increased prevalence, it doesn't really matter. The insurers are more aware of it, and they're becoming more aware of that when they're writing policies, when they're asking health insurance questionnaires, when they're coming around and giving you those kind of once-overs to check what your life insurance policy should look like. Mm-hmm. So I think that... Um, you can't let the insurers take over, if that makes sense. You have to have some people coming in and saying, actually, we need to do this properly. We need to work at how we're going to do it in a way that is effective. Um, because again, everybody's mental health is very different, as you pointed out. So if you just let you know, some of the big insurers who come and want to put you in that box and you in that box and you on that box, that's not
5: helpful. Mm-hmm. And, and just to illustrate that with, with an example of numbers about what the cost looks like for, uh, because of mental health, for insurance providers. This costs, uh, in the U.S. alone, over $400 billion per year, which is a split of $200 billion of actual healthcare expenses and disability costs for populations suffering from mental conditions. And the other $200 billion is uh, related to productivity losses uh, that uh, the employers were suffering from because of mental health. And there was a study in the U.K. also showing that one out of three sick days And days out of office was due to mental health. So this is a big issue, not only because uh, people feel unwell, and of course we all need to, to feel at our best, but also it costs a lot. And the ones that are paying for it is the insurance providers. Um, and another example is uh, the case of disability insurance, something that we didn't know before uh, talking with uh, disability insurance providers and reinsurers was the fact that actually mental health is the, the number one reason for disability insurance worldwide, in particular depression, uh, causes over uh, 30% of the long-term and short-term disability cases uh, worldwide. So. Uh, it's, it's really important to have those numbers in mind uh, to, to understand that at the end of the day, this is going to change our bottom line as well.
2: I think those are great examples, George. Just to add to that on, you know, why do insurance companies care about mental health? Bottom line is insurance companies like healthy people, period. And mental health is a huge part of that equation. Um, if you have a serious mental illness, your life expectancy reduces by 10 to 20 years. That's huge. And if you first, if the first thing that comes to your mind is suicide, it's not. People with serious mental illnesses die earlier because of chronic diseases like heart disease, stroke. So this mind-body connection is really strong. And as Nick mentioned, you have mental health every single day. And that affects how long you live as well. Studies have shown that in older people, if you report being happy on any given typical day, you are less likely to die in a five-year period by 35%. Right? I mean, so your daily mental health affects your life expectancy, but also just permeates your whole life. It affects everything that you do.
3: Can I just add one small thing here? Because I, I, I completely agree, MJ, with what you just said. Um, I always think that there's one slip that we can sometimes fall down into and we need to avoid. And that's the idea that when someone has mental ill health, they can't also function incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Um, it is possible to be unwell with mental health and still be unbelievably successful. So, for example, Kelly Holmes, for example, when she won the double Olympic gold, was also self-harming. It's important to highlight that it's not a binary relationship.
2: A hundred percent. Which I
3: know you would agree, but yeah. I just think it's super important to highlight.
2: Well, in fact, I mean, tech stars, right, co-founder Brad Felt, very successful venture capitalist, but very open about his um, depression, So that's a classic example, right, at Techstars, yeah.
3: And and also, I think by highlighting that, it helps normalize the subject a bit, because there is that danger when it's a subject that's not well known about, and there is a risk that um, if you don't feel comfortable talking to someone, if you think that they're unwell with mental ill health, and that something you might say, that classic thing, I don't want to say the wrong thing, is kind of bananas as as a position, and actually, um, you know, we should just ignore it. It shouldn't fact on how we interact or judge people.
1: I mean, it's quite evident from from everything that we're hearing that there's a lot of um, misconception. There are a lot of misconceptions, or a lot of taboo around mental health. And I particularly enjoy the black and white man holding holding the head example. But um, it, it' it's clear that. Measuring mental health is very important, right? Because you can't fix what you can't measure. And and speaking of taboos and misconceptions, if you think about measuring mental health, I mean, at least to me, the image that comes to mind is Freud and the couch and someone lying there complaining about their mother. Um, how can we leverage technology today to improve the way that we that we measure? mental health and once we've once we've become better at measuring it what what comes next what can we like why does it matter why does data matter in the context of mental health sean do you want to kick us off
4: uh yeah sure so um i i think there's there's a distinction between um how mental health has traditionally been measured and how it can be measured today um, so in the past, uh, uh, a lot of the time, people would, would have been administered a questionnaire, uh, typically paper-based, um, and uh, it would just be comprised of a number of questions, each one of which would have a scale from from one to five, and just add up the scale, and you get a score at the end. Um, and typically, you then have uh, a threshold, and you say above this threshold there's an indication that this person might have a particular condition and below that threshold there's an indication that they might not. But you would then need to have uh, an experienced uh, clinician to actually interpret those results and to, to make sure that uh, the context of the patient situation is understood. Um, so it, there, there has often been uh, quite a subjective element uh, to... Uh, the interpretation of mental health. Yes, with years of experience, ideally, behind that interpretation and expertise, but still, it's, it's quite hard to say, objectively, this person definitely has this condition or not. Um, I think more, more recently, um, with, with the, the move towards uh, digital technology, uh, there's more apps, there's more wearables, uh, and uh, we're in a position where, rather than relying on studies based on a few thousand people at most in, in order to create paper-based questionnaires. Rather than relying on that, we can now rely on uh, apps and wearables which gather data from many tens of thousands of people or more um, in order to uh, identify patterns in, in this data which is updated potentially on a daily basis rather than uh, just when someone happens to, to see their psychologist or psychiatrist. Um, and uh, basically because the, the data is a lot richer, um, it's, it makes it a, a li- little bit more feasible to start actually evaluating this in a more objective, consistent way.
5: And It's, it's not only the wearables, uh, just to add to what, uh, what you're saying, is more than that. So of course, we're using a wearable because it's a way to have continuous monitoring of, um, of the mental health or the emotional state of an individual, through monitoring how the, their body responds to different uh, emotional states or emotional stressors. But there, there are other modalities that we could use to identify a mental state, such as uh, the voice of the person or such as their facial gestures. Uh, probably you have seen how you can tell how someone feels based on their tone of voice or how if they're smiling or not. Uh, all those uh, responses are actually intertwined uh, with uh, with our mental health. Uh, and uh, going further than that, we can use now our devices in order to identify digital biomarkers uh, through the way that um, the people are typing or uh, the people that they are using their applications. So, there are many data sources that we could use. Uh, many of them, such as uh, voice or uh, facial or um, um, uh, autonomic nervous system monitoring, have a lot of research uh, behind them to substantiate that they could be used as indicators for mental health, uh, in addition to, of course, to the, the view of the clinician and uh, to the existing uh, questionnaires that, that we have in the field of, of uh, psychotherapy and psychiatry. You
3: know, I I I, um, I think what you touched on there, I agree with at the end, because I think there's a danger with the rise of technology that um, we just try and completely disregard what's been before. And coming back to Freud, mm-hmm. uh, Freud talked about denial as a, as a defense um, when we don't want to recognize something. Um, I think many of us can relate to a scenario where we think, God, that person is so angry, and the person has no insight into the fact they're angry at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's incredibly important to recognize that human beings are conscious creatures and we are complex in our ability to recognize our internal states. And just because someone was provided with a detailed, accurate, truthful data based on good science doesn't mean they would necessarily be in a position psychologically to accept that feedback. So there is still a role for the process of psychotherapy and the, the benefits that can come from asking more traditional outcome-measured questions are that you can bring into awareness in somebody's mind subjects which are potentially relevant to them that they may have perhaps haven't come to terms with yet. So there's a very famous psychological theory called, well, I don't know how famous it is, it's relatively famous, <laughs> Stiles assimilation model. Um, and what that essentially suggests or, uh, or puts forward is the idea that If someone walks into therapy, I'll stay with the anger argument, walks into therapy on the first session and and they do an outcome measure and it asks on a scale of one to five, how angry are you? And they say, zero, I'm never angry. And then they do 10 sessions of therapy and it's phenomenal therapy. It's the best therapy that's ever been done. And through that process, they realize that anger plays a big part in their life. So at the end of therapy, the therapist uses the same questionnaire and says, how angry are you on a scale of one to five? And the person says, five, it's a massive thing for me. Now, to the untrained eye, you'll look at that and you say, that was the worst therapy ever because that's just, <laughs> well, that person's super angry. But it was phenomenal therapy because you got that person through to the place where they recognize the anger plays in their life. Now, I'd be really interested, probably, George, your sense on this, and to take your building, um, how can that kind of conscious elements of psychological processing and mental health and understanding ourselves be continued into the passive tracking world?
5: It's it's a very good point because uh, definitely in our model as well, we're using training data from the individual themselves. So what we are doing with our device, we are monitoring how your uh, autonomic nervous system responds to different emotional stimuli. So probably you have noticed how you sweat when you're stressed or how your heart is pounding faster when you're angry. All those are indicators from your body that is telling you that something happened now. Uh, So, we would be able to monitor and see this response, and uh, based on training data from thousands of other people, we would be able to tell that usually this is classified as anger, Uh, but then what we're going to do is we're going to personalize it to the individual. So, if the individual tells us that this is not actually anger, this is sadness for me, this is how I classify it on an emotional awareness level. Uh, then this is what we're going to call it. Uh, And uh, the goal would be exactly as you said, uh, to through a psychotherapeutic process, to make these people even more self-aware and self-conscious to better understand their their emotional process. All those wearables, uh, data sources are just the tools to help us, uh, to help psychotherapists and psychiatrists do a better job and help the person develop... uh, Better emotional awareness in a similar way that, in the case of diabetes, for example, we're using glucose monitors. Or in the case of um, cardiovascular uh, disorders, we're using blood pressure monitors. Uh, It's not the blood pressure monitor that is going to tell you that uh, you're suffering from. Uh, from a specific disorder. It's it's the, uh, it's the doctor and the physician who, who's going to tell you that.
0: Can I, can I just add to that point as well, where we see um, a lot uh, in, in finance and outside of finance, actually, people starting to want to take greater control of their own data and act off the back of that data, whatever that data may be. It might be in my day-to-day life that I have an app that puts all my finances in one place and says, Sarah, you spend less money at Pret-a-Manger, which is probably true. Um, but when it's Sarah, and you spend less money at Pret-a-Manger, I can take that, that's okay. I probably know that anyway. But if if I am being um, given information about my mental health and that's all I'm looking at, I'm looking at that data and I'm trying to handle it myself. Um, So here's an example, a friend of mine got an Apple Watch which has a heart rate monitor on it and she became obsessed with her heart rate. And when she was on stage once, we were doing a panel and she came off and she was like, my heart rate was through the roof, I don't know what was wrong. And I was like, well, because you were on stage probably. Um, but then she became incredibly obsessed with it and incredibly anxious. And the more anxious she was, the more her heart rate went up. And because she hadn't associated that data with her mental state or her mental health, and it hadn't occurred to the person who sold her the Apple Watch, that that might be a thing, that putting that data into her hands may have then triggered something or affected something. Um, I think the point that we have to be so careful with what data you can access and how it's presented. So my Fitbit has a setting on it that's supposed to calm me down. It's this button you press, and it's like, breathe in for how many? Six, and then hold, and then breathe out for six. And I tried it once, and I was like, I've got to pass out, and started flapping around. Um, you know, and I, I, that was just me messing around with it. But if you are somebody who was really suffering and that data and that tracking, which is you know coming to you in a way that you're not prepared for, can actually be quite dangerous. I think as well, um, not necessarily if you're wearing a device that comes with all that you know packaging around it, but the other types of data that people are using to track physiological symptoms and how that may impact your mental health. I think that's something we need to really keep an eye on.
1: So how do we how do we solve for that? How do we bridge the gap between the importance of self-reported symptoms, which is where we started the discussion from in terms of measuring, and going all the way to the importance of understanding the, that you're feeling the right emotion correctly, identifying it, categorizing it, and then being therefore empowered to actually do something about it. How, how, what do we do here?
3: I mean, one thing I think we do is we make sure we've got the right minds sitting around the table in these conversations. You know, I think that... Um, gold standard healthcare, in traditional sense, is multidisciplinary. So if you're you're presenting with a complex presentation, then you want your psychiatrist, your psychologist, your social work, your nutritionist, your psychiatric nurse, whoever it might be, sitting around the table, and each has a lens which they see the world by, which is highly valuable to deciding on the appropriate level of care. Um, And by coming together as a multidisciplinary team, they can present a really great health package for that person. I think the important thing to ensure that as innovation and digital stuff comes into the world of mental health, that Mm -hmm. we don't forget that there's a reason, that there's value in the MDT and that you actually now need to create a multidisciplinary team 2.0. And you need your psychiatrists, psychologists, nurses, et cetera, but you also need your designers, your data scientists, your Mm -hmm. whoever it might be. And, And these guys need to now develop a shared language so they can communicate effectively. Um, because clinical psychologists, I can't speak for the other professions, don't get taught about data science or UX, UI or uh, any sensors. I mean, that's, that's, that's not language they will understand. So how do, you, how do you form that shared understanding and build this very cohesive team that can manage clinical risk and be clinically responsible?
0: And, and building yeah. on that, how do you make sure that insurers who are writing health insurance policies yeah. understand mm-hmm. that full... Is, well, it's not as simple as giving somebody a Fitbit. You know, how do you make sure the insurers writing the policies know that?
1: That leads us yeah. very nicely to the next kind of question?
2: question. One thing actually. <laughs> there's, um, there's different types of data too, right? I mean, we've talked a lot about data that users get about physiological data, and I think that's really interesting. And it's some an area we're looking very closely at. But there's also um, to Nick's point where data that the user actually might not understand but can be very indicative. Um, So, for example, I'm seeing startups have gather huge language data sets and then they're doing natural language processing on top of that. So that's kind of data where the user wouldn't necessarily be able to maybe perhaps self-identify. But, you know, using this NLP analysis, they can identify high-risk individuals and then get, you know, them timely help. Um, Another interesting set of companies I'm seeing is capturing data around how the user interacts with the platform, right? So whether that's through a game, um, on your phone, or VR, or completing tasks in an AR environment using your phone. And based on how you're completing those tasks, the platform can indicate whether you're at risk or not. So there's a lot of different types of interesting data being collected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned about being... Oh, sorry, go ahead.
4: Okay, (laughs) Uh, yeah, I just wanted to comment on uh, Nick's uh, uh, idea of a multi-disciplinary team 2.0. Um, And I I completely agree with that. So uh, uh, I think think we always need to think about developers and uh, user researchers and data scientists as working alongside clinicians to make these tools. Um, So it's not just just a matter of using clinical terms or uh, using very technical knowledge to produce some model which no one else can interpret. Mm -hmm. Um, There there has to be a lot of... um, Essentially, insight into how users use the product, and also how um, how they can interpret the product, how they can feed their data into the product in a way that's reliable, and in a way where they actually understand what it is that they're using.
1: Mm-hmm. So, besides, um, you were talking about risk um, assessment, right? So, and we're talking about a bunch of new sort of data categories that that we. Um, are able to utilize, from an insurance perspective, MJ, um, why else should the insurance industry look at that data, and how else can that be utilized? Yeah, sure. Uh, So, I mean,
2: bottom line is insurance companies can use that data to help their customers, Mm -hmm. um, and and especially in preventative measures. So I'll just talk about MetLife a little bit and how MetLife is looking at the space and why it's important to MetLife. Mm So MetLife uh, serves 100 million customers in almost 50 countries around the world. So when they have this global base of customers, they're seeing different mental health issues um, in different regions. For example, in Australia, mental health is the leading cause of disability claims. In South Korea, where MetLife has a huge presence, suicide is a really big problem. Yeah, top five country in terms of suicide rates. Um, In Asia at large, there's a huge growing aging population. And with that, increased cases of dementia and Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So MetLife is very interested in predictive and preventative startups and companies that can help predict these kind of uh, mental health issues. And then in the US, MetLife has a huge group benefits business and serves 90 of the Fortune 100. As George talked about productivity, um, before, and just is relevant to uh, Nick's company. So MetLife is very interested in improving the well-being of these employees. Mm-hmm. And then last but not least, MetLife's customers themselves have actually self-reported, self-identified mm-hmm. met mental health services as a service they would like from MetLife. And so for an insurer that wants to increase that engagement with their customers, right, that's something a lot of insurers are looking to do, mm-hmm. what better way than to help them with something that affects them you know, every single day.
1: Mm-hmm. Sarah. any views on regulatory or ethical? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... that we should consider in the context
0: of... The, of I mean, it's a huge one, isn't it? Um, when you're looking at... Um, it's a huge one generally when you're looking at how you might use um, health data, mm-hmm. personal data broadly, then health data gets even... People get even more conscious about... Um, I think, you know, specifically regarding mental health, you have to consider a number of factors, so... This is a very vulnerable, in many cases, part of the population. Um, their priorities will, will slip. Insurance is probably, if they're self-insuring, probably right at the bottom of that list, particularly if they have a combination of money problems and mental health problems, and those two go very, very closely hand in hand. Um, interestingly, talking about self-reporting, people are far more willing to self-report that they have a mental health problem than they are that they have a money problem. Um, there's a great charity in the UK which has which published some brilliant statistics about that but that means that, so not only are they less likely to be insured, but they're also a population that's likely to be much more, um, uh, suffer much more if, if something does happen and they, they, they are underinsured and they don't know what to do about it. Um, second of all, I think, you know, a lot of what we have right now about whether insurers can use your data is self-reported consent. You know, I, yes, I consent for you to use this data to do A, B, C or D. Now, if you're um, in the middle of a mental health crisis, I would say a lot of the time you're certainly not capable of giving that informed consent, either because you can't process it, because you don't understand it. Um, you know, you you don't actually necessarily know what they're going to do with it anyway, and neither neither does the insurer. Mm-hmm. So I think um, you know when you're when you're looking at and, and in the UK and in Europe, you're it, it's very very um, the regulation at the moment is, is pretty good for how you use personal health. You have to. Um, be able to opt in. Um, if you don't want um, an automated decision made about your insurance, you have you can say that and they must have a manual process in place. Mm-hmm. So if you say you don't want a black box to make a decision about whether you're insurable or not, then they have to find a way around it. Um, how long that will last, I don't know. <laughs> but that is in place at the moment. But I think it's got to be the top of people's minds when you're looking at how the insurance industry is using data, what it's doing with it you know, and, and what impact that might have. Because at the end of the day, insurance is a risk-based business. And if you're low risk, you theoretically pay less money. And if you're high risk, you pay more money. That's technically how it should work, right? But if you're a very vulnerable part of the population that's very high risk, should you be just being charged premiums to support everybody else? Obviously not. But if you're working on a you know a new a classic business case, that is what will happen if you just start taking the data and running with it. So I think there have to be some regulatory uh, you know, rules in place, some guidance in place. No, I don't want to write it. No, I don't have the job of advising anybody writing it, but I think it has to be an important consideration.
1: Okay. Um, maybe um, the last 30 seconds, uh, Any any words around what could the system look like with all the new data and new information that we have and also taking under consideration all the limitations and the um, ethical and social responsibility that we have in the context of, of insurance? If you were to design it yourself, one of you, what would it look like?
3: It's important to remember this is this, the subject of mental health and mental ill health and how we define it. Is not a, mm-hmm. a, a, it's not a done deal. Uh, DSM-5 and ICD-10 are just manuals to help us understand how to classify. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine that with the, the rise of more data and insight that we can gain from technology and the role of mental health and preventative approaches, giving us wider data sets, et cetera, that we will start to understand the picture around mental ill health much better. And our classification system will become much more complex and nuanced and personalized. And that will allow for ultimately much better treatment modalities that will be more effective.
0: Mm-hmm. I think I think just generally insurance, we're looking at a trend of prevention rather than cure. And I hope that that comes right before in health insurance, particularly mental health.
5: Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more with, with both. I think that the future of mental health is all related to a seamless user experience from the patient side, ideally a preventative one. So right now we see that uh, from the time that symptoms start in the life of a patient to the time that they receive an intervention, usually we have even eight years. I think in the U.S. the average is close to eight years of time. So how can we change that using all those data and all those services? And how insurance is taking a proactive view to that and is, is moving closer to the, to, the, to the member in order to provide better user experience and help them live a happier and healthier life?
4: Yeah, I... Um, I I can imagine where um, we'd be able to link multiple data sets together, different types of data together in order to derive richer insights uh, than than we can at the moment. So, uh, for example, being able to relate uh, data from wearables with uh, prescription data, with uh, uh, input data from psychiatrists Mm -hmm. and so on, and then being able to relate that to what happens to, to patients further down the line.
2: I'll keep it short and sweet. Uh, preventative measures and startups focus on that is something we're very interested in. If you're working on any mental health company, I'd love to talk to you.
1: <laughs> Thanks Thank everyone. You.
0: After the panel, I caught up with Ed Leon Klinger from Flock to discuss what they're up to. Welcome to InsureTech Insider, I'm Sarah Kachansky and I'm joined by Ed Leon-Klinger, CEO of Flock. How are you today, Ed?
6: Very well, thanks for having me.
0: So we're at the InsureTech Insights Conference. This is our third bash at recording this interview because it is so busy. It's very vibrant today. Um, Have you had a good morning so far?
6: Uh, Can't complain.
0: (laughs) So we haven't had you on the show before, so can I start by asking you to give me um, an overview of who you are and what Flock is and what you guys do?
6: Absolutely. So my own background is predominantly academic. Um, I studied at Oxford for four years and did my master's there um, in engineering science. I then went to Cambridge and did a master's in technology policy um, at the Judge Business School. And there we were looking at um, three different distinct types of technologies, um, artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles, road vehicles, and autonomous drones, aerial vehicles. Um, Specifically, I was interested in understanding risk across these three different verticals and whether or not it's possible to identify and quantify risk, um, which can then be communicated to different stakeholders within those industries um, and can actually allow those emerging technologies to grow and prosper. Um, I was introduced to a man called Anton, who's the founder of Flock, who had been studying a uh, very similar topic at Imperial College London, um, specifically at the Data Science Institute there. And he'd been looking at the use of real-time data to quantify the risk of a drone flight. His theory was, if you could pull in lots of different data sets, data sets about things like wind speed and real-time hyperlocal weather conditions, um, location data, proximity to high-risk areas, and so on, then you can accurately quantify the risk of a drone flight. Um, And this was very much in line with what I had actually written at Cambridge. So we decided to quit our respective jobs. I was supposed to be working in private equity. (laughs) Uh, He was actually working on another startup that he'd already founded and funded. And we jumped into Flock as a data science project, effectively. It very quickly evolved into an tech startup. The reason being, if you can quantify risk, then you can price risk. Um, And so what we did is we actually partnered with Allianz, Mm -hmm. uh, the world's leading aviation insurer, to release an insurance technology product in the form of Flock Cover. And what this does is it allows drone pilots, whether they're having fun with a drone or flying for for fun on Christmas Day or whatever else, all the way through to the largest global drone fleet operators with hundreds of drones across the world to actually insure their drone flights on a pay-as-you-fly basis. So we price insurance policies by the hour using real-time data, and we distribute uh, insurance products fully digitally either through an app or through the web.
0: So, um, is it a requirement to have insurance if you're, if you're uh, you know, sort of, a, I don't know, let's say a weekend drone flyer?
6: So, recreational pilots who fly for fun do not need insurance. Okay. Um, not currently in the UK, although they do in other countries. But if you're a commercial pilot or if you're an, an organisation that flies and is compensated for your flights, so you get paid, mm-hmm. then you actually do need insurance anywhere in the EU, Canada, China, and actually across lots of the developed world.
0: So, um what were you, what were, was this what you were here to talk about today? Was, did you, You're on a panel, I understand, this afternoon? Is this kind of the subject matter you're, you're going to be discussing? Is it so, drones?
6: Or what, what are you talking about? Good, good question. The panel that I'm on today is actually answering the question is data of fundamental value to insurance? Um, Interesting. We, we are, at our core, a data analytics company. Yeah. We ingest enormous amounts of data at the moment of flight, so real-time data, and also static data about location, or about you as a pilot, or about the type of drone that you're flying, um, in order to create and sell the most bespoke insurance products that we can, Mm -hmm. which last anywhere from an hour up to a year. Um, And so for us, data is absolutely a fundamental value to insurance. And and what we do with that data is uh, a number of things. But ultimately, we want to put massive amounts of value into the hand of the end user. And the way that we achieve that, the most visible way that we achieve that, is actually by helping pilots and organizations to reduce and mitigate their own risks. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we provide insurance products through Allianz that ensure those risks, but we actually provide visual dashboards and tools to our pilots so that they can identify risks before they even take place and minimize and reduce those risks. So, for example, we will tell you the safest time of of flights in a given day, will allow you to schedule your flight up to 10 days in advance and will tell you what the risk profile of that flight looks like at any given time so that you can choose when the safest time to take off might be. We'll also give you uh, visual cues right from within the app telling you that, for example, the wind speed is particularly high right now, or you're particularly close to a prison or an airport, and maybe you should reconsider your, <laughs> your flight path. You might
0: want to rethink that. Right, <laughs> yeah. especially
6: in light of, of recent news. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think you'd actually be hard-pressed to argue that data isn't a fundamental value to insurance. I don't know I don't know how I even begin to
6: construct that argument. I don't envy argument. the person who's making that argument on the
0: Yeah. Um, brilliant. Okay, so um, what is your... Uh, prediction for the future of kind of insure tech insurance? And I, I like to give people a little bit of leeway here. So, you know, for the next six to 12 months, or if, you know, you've got a more powerful crystal ball, maybe five years. So
6: I'll choose the five-year option, um, just because it's more exciting and, and more unpredictable. Um, our, one of our thesis at, at Flock is this idea that insurance will actually move towards risk mitigation. Um, it will always be required, insurance, um, when something does go wrong. But I think the amount of data that insurers and insure techs collect and analyze will actually allow them to provide massive amounts of genuine insight directly to the end user. Um, We're starting to do that at Flock and we've got quite exciting products in the works, but we can definitely see it happening as a general trend across the industry. So what what we foresee is a situation where in the future, insurers will actually actively help customers to identify and mitigate risks. Maybe that's by planning the safest routes for autonomous vehicles. Maybe that's by automatically geofencing and blocking drone flights from taking off in high-risk areas, for example. Um, uh, And so that's one of the fundamental changes that we think we'll see in the insurance space is a shift towards risk mitigation rather than just risk insurance. A
0: more proactive approach from insurers.
6: Exactly right.
0: Brilliant Well, I for one hope that future comes true because I think that would be great to see. Um, thank you so much for joining us. If people wanted to find out more about you or about flock, where would they go? Do you have a website Twitter handle?
6: We do. so our website is flockcover.com and it's uh, very focused on what we're doing in the drone industry, so particularly valuable to drone pilots and drone mm-hmm. companies. Um, we've got a Twitter handle which is at flockcover as well, and I'm at, at Ed Leonklinger and we post about everything from the future of insurance through to the small changes in regulations in drone laws. So a wide variety of content if you're after
0: it. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Have a good afternoon.
6: Thanks for having me. Cheers.
0: Next, I spoke to Perel Green from AXA, finding out what their ventures team is up to these days. Welcome to InsureTech Insider. I'm Sarah Kachansky. I'm here with Perel Green, who is head of AXA Next Labs for Europe. Um, how are you today, Perel? I'm very well, thank you. Um, and we're here at the uh, InsurTech
7: Insights Conference. Uh, so, you know, have you had a good morning? I think you were on a panel this morning. I was. It was a very interesting panel. It was uh, artificial intelligence in underwriting, specifically in life and health, so always riveting. And was it was a good panel, good debate? I think so. I think so. There was this uh, discussion about whether we have enough data scientists, is there talent um, deprivation, we thought that there are novice data scientists, but these data scientists need to know the context of insurance because you can't really uh, build out models or accurate models if you don't have the context. Really? So that was one of uh, very heartening uh, uh, conclusions that we had from the panel.
0: So it's always nice when you come away with a positive from oh, yes. the panel, rather than yes. everybody going, no, no, it'll never happen. No. <laughs> um, so last time we spoke to you, we spoke to you about a product called Fizzy, which had been developed um, with Axel Labs or in Axel Labs. Um, you know, what, what is there can kind of, you give us an update on that product,
7: and is there anything else exciting that you guys are working on you'd like to tell us about? So we are developing product offerings around uh, climate So if a climate event happens and you're a farm who has a coverage, then we automatically pay up. There are other climate-related parametric products that are are being developed. Uh, Currently, the focus is France and China, where we have a big presence uh, France mainly and China, where we'd like to grow. So the whole suite of uh, parametric products is an area of focus for us. So that's really exciting. Uh, we have uh, a whole new business at next, which develops complementary business models to insurance, uh, moving from pair to partner. So we're all focused together, all of us working towards a single strategy, which is uh, Something very unique in insurance, a lot of insurance uh, companies are talking about it and have siloed businesses, but we have brought together all the businesses globally and working towards this pair to pattern of strategy. So it's
0: really nice to see people working you know, in accordance with each other rather than working in a siloed way to try and develop individual products.
7: Exactly. So there is no dissonance and there are not Protectionist attitudes that you remain in your little box. Yeah. We're all in the same box, the green box where we're <laughs> developing new models.
0: That's very exciting. That's a, that's a really nice change to see in the industry. Yeah. Um, talking of change in the industry, you were at this event last year, I believe. Um, what do you think? What,
7: what have you seen that's excited you over the last twelve
0: months? Say between you know the last year's InsurTech Insights
7: and, and this year's conference. So the key change is one that InsurTech funding in twenty eighteen was four point. I think three point four or five billion which was more than last year so the track the track record of insurtech investment is high there is a lot of traction around uh, business models which are alternate or complementary to insurance specifically in health telemedicine is taking a lot of uh, um, investment dollars and therefore a lot of interest from insurers and our customer base uh, so there is a huge amount of momentum supporting uh, uh, disruption, but in a positive way of insurance. So you're moving towards more customer-centric insurance and a uh, suite of offering of insurance. And what,
0: um, what changes do you think we'll see? So that's, you know, really exciting. We're moving towards more customer-centric models, more complementary models, you know, a, a, a broader spectrum of products. Um, is, is that what you think the key trend will be for the next 6 or 12 months? Or do you think we'll see anything, you know, what do you think we might see we'll be talking about this time next year?
7: I, I couldn't possibly look at the because the changes that we do in innovation are are, are slow they're, they're, you don't immediately see the outcomes because there is a mass market that you need for the change to be adopted so but the right people are now making the right kind of choices that I believe that the positive momentum of innovation will continue over the next six to 12 months as well Do you
0: think we'll pick up speed now people have got their, you know got
7: their heads around the idea of it? Uh, um, One would hope so, but then you have exogenous factors like Brexit, uh, global slowdown of um, mostly of of, of EU and and, and Western European GDP, all these exogenous factors seem to uh, impute right back into your model of slowing down some of the pace. So I would say with the activity that I'm seeing, I see the movement upwards, momentum positive. But it does not impute all the factors which are outside our control, which could change this.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think the B word will come up in every conversation yes. <laughs> from now until et- eternity, it feels yes. like. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us, Parole. Um Where can people find out more about you or about Axelabs? Is there a website, a Twitter handle, something like that you'd like to share with us?
7: So my Twitter handle we'll is Paril Green and axelabs is at AXA Labs, one word. And uh, we are AXA Next, which would be www.axanext.com. Perfect. Thank Thank you you so much for joining us. I hope you have an excellent afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: And finally, I caught up with friend of the show, Jantana from Tapali, to hear what she's been up to lately. Welcome to InsurTech Insider,
8: I'm Sarah Kachansky and I'm here with Chantana from Tappali. Lovely to see you again Chantana. how are you today? I'm very well, thank you, and thank you so much for having this interview. No worries,
0: so we're here today at the InsurTech Insights Conference. Um, you were on stage earlier, I believe, doing a panel. What was that panel on?
8: It was about the gig economy and what future holds for the insurers in this space
0: did it go well? Was it good?
8: Um, it went really well. As a matter of fact, we have amazing um, panelists this morning.
0: It's brilliant. I always like it when you come off stage after a panel and you're like, yes, I enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we've, we've had you on the podcast a few times before, um, but would you like to give us a quick update on what Tapley's been up to recently? Have you, have you had any exciting developments you'd like to tell us about?
8: Yes. And for those who are new to Tapley, We are um, a digital MGA and we are backed by Lewis of London. Uh, We predominantly cover the commercial insurance product for SME and freelancers. And uh, what is new for TAPLE is that we have just received Innovate UK grant. So now we are building our AI, um, which hopefully, you know, within the next few months, you will see that uh, life on our platforms.
0: How exciting. So um Innovate UK what what is that a, is that a
8: government funding body what, what, what is what is that? Yes, it's a government uh, funding body for high-tech company.
0: That's always exciting then a government backing to, to you know to your your innovation your idea. Um so you were here last year at this conference is that correct?
8: Um possibly yes. I <laughs> you was do so at, many. <laughs> yes, I was at a few um Insurtech events so So, I was just going to ask you, what do you think has changed in the
0: last 12 months in the insure tech industry? What developments have you seen over the last 12 months? Uh,
8: From the technology space, I think, uh, you know, AI obviously is, um, AI and blockchain is still very much the um, topic that everyone is talking about from the kind of, you know, segment um, or industry segment, um, the gig and the sharing economy is again you know like still very much um in demand in terms of um uh, keynote speaking sessions in various insurtech events
0: that's always a sign that it's
8: something that everybody's interested in isn't yes, it yes i think that and they should be mm-hmm. yeah
0: I think um, the gig economy um, is an area that we're, we've only seen the beginning of. I think, uh, I hope you agree with me, but I think, do you think over the next 12 months we're gonna see a lot more activity in this area?
8: Yes, uh, certainly. And you know, like over the last few years or so, the sharing economy, in UK and in the US have grown, you know, nearly 100% uh, year on year. So, and that could be said about the insurance in this space as well. If you're talking to uh, some of our peer, for example, they will tell you all about, you know, how much they have grown over the last uh, 12 to 24 months.
0: So, I think um, maybe things have been a little bit slow, the large insurers have been a little bit slow to wake up to the gig economy. Do you think we're going to see things moving faster in the next sort of year or so? Uh,
8: Probably not in the next year, um, maybe in the next three to five. And the reason for that is um, purely because of the, I think, uh, economical um, reasons.
0: Are you going Um, to say the B word? (laughs)
8: <laughs> well, I mean, it's all, I mean, what driven the capacity providers mm-hmm. to, to be in our space is, I think, their bottom line, you know, mm-hmm. pr- profitability at the end of the day. And obviously, you know, like asking the incumbent to take risk in a kind of, you know, like micro insurance level, but the risk remained. Um, and that means, you know, a lot of, income, we will have to think twice. So I think over the next three to five years, when some of our on-demand insurance platform have become more mature, and that we have proven our case that our on-demand insurance product doesn't mean increasing risk. and higher loss ratio. If we can prove that concept, then obviously, you know, like a lot, uh, many more insurers would be more than happy to provide capacity. We will see a lot more product being available to consumer. And Tapoli is already offering the on-demand insurance product, and we are basically capturing all the data that we could get, uh, and also intel about our customers and what they need. So over the next three years, you will see an improvement, certainly in the product development side and the um, continue in improving the system.
0: So once you've, you've proven the business case you know, and, <clears throat> yeah. and you've built your model, yeah. you think the larger insurers will sit up and go, actually, that could work yes. for us.
8: Yes, it's not about you know, like approving the customer needs. Mm-hmm. The uh, incumbents are aware of the needs, but we are talking about the business model and making sure that we can underwrite the risk at a micro-insurance level Safely, and that you know we're not going to bankrupt the incumbents in the in that process. So that's basically what we need to prove.
0: And um, presumably, your uh, the new AI that you're developing will will contribute to that as well.
8: Yes, it will certainly increase the efficiency of the process, reduces costs, which would help the incumbent to be able to make profit even at the micro level, and that is basically their main barrier for entrance to our market.
0: Yeah, you say reduce costs in their ears, all prick up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Um, if people wanted to find out more about yourself or about Tapley, where could they go? Do you have a website, Twitter handle you'd
8: like to share? Yeah, so um, you can find us at um, tapali.com or email us at info at
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful afternoon.
8: Thank you so much.
0: That wraps up this special episode of InsureTech Insider. Thanks to all my panel guests and interviewees. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at elevenfs.com.